Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. It's been a long time, Alan. How are you going? Uh, hi, Darren. I'm good, but how was your holiday? Look, in the present circumstances, I, I don't want to say too much, given so many of our listeners are likely listening to this in lockdown. You know, we, I guess, have a bit of luck for a change over here. My wife and I are both fully vaccinated, and so we were lucky to get the opportunity to fly to Europe with the kids and resurrect a holiday that we had planned meticulously for last year and lost that due to the initial COVID outbreak. But numbers in Europe have been relatively low, and so we were able to get through the trip and come back before things you know, with the Delta variant got too messy. So there were no dramas. We weren't held up at any point. And you know, I admit there was a bit of anxiety throughout that something would go wrong and the border would close and we'd get stuck. Yeah. But yeah, look, it was a success. There were some real highlights. Uh, you know, The Dolomites, one of the places we went to in Italy, were, were just breathtaking. I'd never even thought of them as a holiday destination before, and they are really stunning. And one other upside is there are very few tourists basically none from the USA or North America and Asia. And, or Australia. You know, place, or Australia, of course, yes, none of those backpacking Aussies. And so that made the experience a bit different and, and I think much improved. So, look, look, given the kids haven't been in, in school for almost two years now since February of last year and, and they're not going to return to school until we come home at the end of the year, I think it was great mostly to give them something different, you know, good for their development, just to take them out of their routine here, stuck in our apartment all the time. And so, yeah, it was great. There is one thing also I should say, though, you know, I've been reading constantly about COVID-19 and it just looks more and more like it's going to become endemic, right? That it's going to become a situation where if you're vaccinated, you will still get it probably. It'll be like the common cold, but that the, everyone in the world is going to get it in some form. It's just that the vaccinated and the young are going to be much less likely to be affected seriously. So it's something that I'm, I'm keeping in mind. I'm trying to get myself comfortable with the idea that at some point I probably will get it and just hope that I have enough protections and, and, and as well as the kids and, and my family. So anyway, let's get started. It's, it's Friday the 23rd of July today. And I know. I mean, I say this every week that the news is is crazy, but it, it feels like right now it hasn't been the, the craziest month for Australia in the world, at least. Of course, a lot's happening inside Australia, but there is still enough for us to talk about. And we're going to begin with the appointment of a new Secretary of DFAT, and then we'll move to a pair of cyber stories, the attribution to China of a massive hack of Microsoft earlier this year and large-scale spying by a private Israeli firm. Third, we'll touch on the recent APEC meeting, and then we will finish by returning to the ongoing question of Afghanistan. So we begin with the announcement that Catherine Campbell is replacing Francis Adamson as the Secretary of DFAT. Now, Campbell has a very interesting CV. Her most recent job has been the Secretary of the Department of Social Services, which she began in 2013, so quite a long time in that role. Prior to that, she was Secretary of the Department of Human Services, which is now called Services Australia. Prior to that, she was a Deputy Secretary in the Department of Finance and also in the Department of Education, Employment and Workplace Relations. 
Now, for her entire career, she's been an officer in the Australian Army Reserve, where she is the first woman to be promoted to the rank of Major General in the Reserves. She's been awarded an Order of Australia and a Conspicuous Service Cross. So, Alan, this is the first appointment of a new DFAT secretary since our podcast began. So I saw it as an opportunity for us to talk a bit more broadly about the role. You know, I confess when I first heard the news, my initial reaction was surprise, given her lack of experience working in DFAT previously. So I said to myself, well, you need to think this through a bit more thoroughly and rigorously. So I I built myself a little theoretical model to do so. So, Alan, before I ask for your comment, if you're happy, I might set out that model first and then get you to to tear it apart afterwards. Darren, that's exactly what we all look to you for. Go ahead, be my guest. Okay, well, let me begin, of course, with a caveat or the emphasis that my model is not tainted at all by any real-world experience. But having said that, I can think of four broad categories of skills and attributes that I would look for in a DFAT secretary. And I'll give each a label and talk about them one by one. So the first is administrator. The second is conciliary. The third is strategist. And the fourth is diplomat. So I'll start with administrator. Obviously, DFAT is a large bureaucratic entity. It has around 6,000 staff based in Australia and 120 embassies, high commissions, consulates, general and representative offices around the world. So you you obviously need someone who can run this huge organisation, make decisions about budgets and about personnel, process management, someone who can motivate and boost the morale of the staff. And so I think also the administrator sets the culture of the organisation. Is it flat and consultative or is it more hierarchical? Is it inclusive or is it hard-headed and cutthroat? Does it emphasise some aspects of the national interest and certain threats and opportunities over others? So that's the administrator. The second one, and I can always, I never pronounce this word properly, but conciliary from the Godfather movies, that mafia concept. If you don't know the term, you need to watch the the first three Godfather movies to get a real sense of what it means. Let me interrupt you, Darren. This is extraordinary. But I was actually doing just that for the first time in about 25 years or so last week. And I was reminded of what masterpieces they are. So, Mm. so. This is your Robert Duval as Tom Hagen model of conciliary. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's the, the perfect term, but the notion you know, is that the conciliary helps legitimate the family, if you're thinking in the mafia terms, their operations. It helps represent them to the out, outside world to some extent. And the main reason I'm using it here is to capture the reality that the secretary's boss is the minister or the ministers, if you include trade and development. And therefore, the most important thing might be that that relationship, you know, that trusted, strong and trusted relationship between the two. And that if you don't have that with your political masters, you're not going to be effective. And that trust includes not just you're doing what they tell you to do, but also I think to be able to anticipate and manage the political angles of the portfolio. You know, crudely, what could be splashed across the front pages of tabloids like the Daily Telly or the Herald Sun. So you're not a politician yourself. In the mafia sense, Tom Hagen in the movies wasn't biologically part of the Corleone family, but you understand the interests of the of the politicians, the family, if you will. You understand what they are and you can act accordingly. So that's the second. The third is strategist. You know, this is the role of the, of the grand strategic thinker. 
someone who understands the big forces of world politics and has the intellectual interest and the capability to develop policies and messages to help Australia navigate these forces. Alan, we've talked recently about the need for DFAT to produce an update to the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper or perhaps a new white paper entirely. And so a strategist, in my theory, would be giving significant intellectual input into such a document, as well as advice, of course, to the government on the numerous other strategic questions and issues that our country faces each year. A nice example, I was trying to think of a good example other than the white paper, and I wonder whether the Quad, you know, in not recently, but in the, the years prior to that, might be a good example, because of course it's now very much a political entity, it has the attention of world leaders, but for a long time, in my understanding and memory, it was driven more by senior officials who are kind of keeping it on a slow boil in the mid 2010, early to mid 2010s, and by and by academics and think tankers, of course, it's, yeah. it's a yeah. good example of the way in which academic thinking permeates through to policy. Mm, mm. And so, my fourth category is, of course, diplomat. I'm specifically thinking of situations where the secretary themselves is the most senior Australian representative in a room or on a Zoom call, and so there's no minister present, and they are the ones leading an interaction with counterparts from foreign countries. The example that sprung to mind when I was thinking about this happened last year when when Francis Adamson placed a call to China's ambassador to Australia regarding that infamous tweet that was sent by a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson of this fabricated image of Australian soldiers killing children in Afghanistan. And, of course, the contents of that call were subsequently released by the Chinese in breach of diplomatic protocol. So, you know, they're they're the four categories. And, And my prior is that every candidate for the job is going to vary in their strengths across them. Administrator, conciliary, strategist, and diplomat. And that different governments and different ministers are going to have different preferences about the balance between those four skills. And so as a theorist then, the interesting question to me is how this balance affects the conduct of Australian foreign policy. So, Alan, there you have my potted theory of DFAT secretary. I'll let you react now, informed, of course, by real-world experience yourself and the knowledge of the history of the position. Well, look, I, th- I, th- I genuinely, I thought there was a brilliant taxonomy, Darren. Of, of course, the answer is all of the above, but I think you capture in that model the key functions very well. I guess I just add the additional point that although three of your schools, that is administrator, conciliary and strategist, would apply to any secretary's position in the APS, the fourth skill set, the chief diplomat, is unique to DFAT. Every secretary is expected to have a good grasp of her agency's business, of course, but the formal hierarchies of diplomatic practice lay on the head of any country's foreign service an expectation that they will be speaking with an authority only one step removed from the minister when talking to their counterparts from other foreign services and there are sort of formal meetings in which secretaries discuss these issues. So that's a bit different from the rest. Yeah, it makes me think, Alan, we were reading out 
Campbell's biography, and at one point she was the Minister for a Portfolio Education and Employment. I don't know if that portfolio exists in the same form now. They're mm. constantly changing names, mm. these portfolios. But one portfolio that never changes, of course, is the diplomatic one. It might be expanded to include aid and, and trade, but there is a set of norms and, and history behind the role that is being played, which makes me then think, shuffling leadership positions across portfolios in the Australian public service is a regular thing. You know, let's take two guests from our podcast. Claire Walsh moved from DFAT across to finance. Rebecca Skinner went from defence to lead services Australia. And so it's totally normal that you can pick up portfolios that on their surface look very different, finance to education to industry, to et cetera. But is this, is this also true of DFAT? I mean, has this kind of movement included DFAT in the past or is this more you know, novel and historical precedent? There've been outsiders coming into DFAT in the past, but this is an outsider from more outside mm. than any of the others like Stuart Harris or Michael Lestrange. There's a debate that goes on in developed democracies like ours about how secretaries and department heads should be chosen. And some countries, New Zealand's an example, have adopted a system which is almost completely devoid of political engagement in the appointment of government CEOs. Here in Australia, there's always been a stronger role in the process for ministers, and I've myself got no problem with that. I think it's essential to have trust between the minister and the head of the department, and in, in your model, that's the conciliary role. In this case, I, I think it's clear that Catherine Campbell and Maurice Payne work together and that they have mutual regard and that the PM is comfortable in working with her too. It's also pretty clear that the government is sending a signal that it wants something different from DFAT than it's been getting. No one's said, at least in public, what that might be. But you don't make an appointment to any organisation this far out of the usual range of expectations unless you want radical change. Coalition governments tend to put more weight on the public service as implementers of government decisions than as sources of policy ideas. In fact, the PM in remarks to the APS has said that very clearly. So mm. going back to your model, they're obviously looking for the administrator and not for the strategist. Fair enough. But going back to what I said before, unless they come up with a completely new sort of model, and that's possible, I guess, you know, director of policy or something, the new secretary is going to have to master the role of chief diplomat in discussions with her counterpart. So, so she's going to have a big briefing book to digest. Mm. Back on your question about personnel movement, there's a public service myth in Canberra that DFAT is some sort of closed shop. Whatever the position was in the sort of distant past, it's certainly not true now. The last time I looked, I think around 40% of DFAT's senior executive staff had come from outside the department or or at least had extensive experience outside it. And I don't think there's been a secretary since probably Dick Walcott in the 1990s who hasn't had experience outside DFAT. And that's a good thing. And, it, you know, maybe a good thing with Catherine Campbell. It's universally acknowledged that DFAT is much less effective in its outreach to other departments in Canberra than it is in dealing with foreign governments. So the outside experience should help there. Yeah, 
This leads me then, I guess, into the larger question, Alan. With your knowledge of DFAT secretaries past, you know, what has made the successful ones successful and the less successful ones less successful? Well, we all know, we've all worked with different sorts of leaders. We know that leadership can come in a number of different forms. And if we don't know that, there's a whole management training out industry <laughs> out there ready to help us. And the point, I guess, is that the style of leadership you might need in an organisation at one time is not what you're going to need at another. So mm. there's no there's no blueprint. I just want to make a couple of points. Unlike any other part of government except the ADF, DFAT involves a whole of life and whole of family commitment. Now, I'm talking to, to someone who knows that very well, Darren. You've been moved overseas. You've been shaken by explosions. You've been worried about your children's education and health. You've been cut off from your job. Yeah, that's true, Alan. And of course, in this sort of time of coronavirus, there have been many families that have been separated in posts where the decision was made to send the family home because of the risks involved. And so in that respect, notwithstanding all that's happened here in, in Beirut, I'm very grateful that we are still together as a family. Yeah, look, that's that's right. I don't I don't think the difficulties that diplomats in our overseas missions are now battling with are at all understood in the wider community here. Mm. Over the years, the department has got much better at dealing with the particular requirements of individuals and families. But even so, the decisions made, whether you know whether they are decisions to go on posting or not to mm. go on posting affect many more people than the officer concerned. And in addition, the experience of individuals with their colleagues in the overseas network, again, this is not unlike the ADF, go deeper and leave more lasting impressions than you get from normal office experiences and friendships. I mean, if you've been blasted by a bomb in Beirut, you know very well the people who've had to gather around to deal with that. This imposes particular demands on the Secretary of the Department, including legal obligations regarding duty of care, but it also uh, requires her to understand the history and culture of the organisation, because even if you want to change some aspects of that culture, you need to know what it is. But I'm sure that someone who holds a senior military position would understand that. Yeah, on this question of culture, I think back to the Liberal MP and former ambassador to Israel, I should add, Dave Sharma. He wrote a piece for the Lowy Interpreter, I think it was last year, where he said that, and I'll get, I've got the quote here, at home, DFAT needs to re-embrace its primary mission, which is to shape Australia's strategic environment to our benefit and drop the inwards focus on cultural change and workplace norms, end quote. Now, in our last episode, Alan, you mentioned the farewell speech given by Frances Adamson and that one of the major themes of her speech and I guess her reflection on her time as secretary was the issue of diversity in the foreign service. And my understanding is that changing DFAT's culture was one of the focuses of her tenure. So my question, I guess, is, does culture matter in the conduct of foreign policy if, under new leadership, there is a significant cultural change in whatever direction? 
would we expect that to change Australian foreign policy? Is Sharma right that focusing on culture comes at the expense of efforts to shape the strategic environment? I'm a walk and chew gum guy myself. I think Dave Sharma wants DFAT to be a stronger player in the Australian and international debate, and I do too. And I think it's great that we've got a, a parliamentarian making that case. But it's also important that Australia's overseas representatives are representative of Australia. And as Francis said on the podcast with us, that they look like and reflect the nation. So the work that she and others, including the minister, have done in making it easier for women to move into senior positions or in expanding the position of Indigenous Australians in the Foreign Service is also abundantly necessary. I agree with that, Alan. Let's look forward then to wrap this segment up. What are some of the issues that are going to be on her agenda? She's going to face what Australia faces, really, in an international order at a new turning point, strategic competition between our most important military and economic partners, a global pandemic, a rapidly warming planet, a trading system in trouble, problematic multilateral institutions, and so on. For many years now, the Lowy Institute has been monitoring the, the way in which the instruments of Australian foreign policy have been deprived of resources to do the things that statecraft requires of us in the world, despite the agreed challenges that we face. Uh, diplomatic trade, aid budgets have all been falling, and real expenditure on the department in 2024 is expected to be less than it was in 2014. I noticed too, and I think I've noted it before, but the increase in the size of the Australian Defence Force announced by the government in the 2020 Defence Update was bigger than the entire Australian diplomatic service. So if Catherine Campbell is able to do something real and sustained about that, then she will certainly be regarded as a transformative leader. So maybe, look, Darren, we just end by offering her our very best wishes for what lies ahead, and it's going to take everything she's got to deal with it. Absolutely, Alan. Our best wishes and, of course, a standing invitation to join us on the podcast to discuss these issues anytime she pleases. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our second item in which I'm going to pair two stories, both from this past week. The first saw Australia joining the United States and a number of other Western governments, including the EU and NATO, which was the largest coalition ever, according to US officials, in formally blaming or attributing to China a large hack of the Microsoft Exchange email server earlier this year, further claiming that Chinese government contractors and or criminal hackers connected to Beijing have undertaken ransomware attacks and other illicit cyber activities. However, these claims or these accusations were not paired with sanctions, either against the Chinese government or its contractors, in contrast to when the US attributed the SolarWinds hack to Russia earlier this year, where it had actually expelled some diplomats and imposed sanctions on several individuals. It should be noted, however, that separately on the same day this past Monday, the United States Department of Justice indicted four Chinese hackers, three of whom are believed to be officers in China's intelligence agency, the MSS, the Ministry of State Security. There were also important differences in the attribution statements. The US, Canada, New Zealand, the UK and Australia 
said that the Chinese state security agencies were behind the Microsoft hack, while the EU did not directly blame the Chinese government, limiting its accusation to the Chinese government allowing hackers to operate on its territory. Let me just read an extract from a joint statement from Foreign Minister Payne, Defence Minister Dutton and Home Affairs Minister Andrews. In consultation with our partners, the Australian government has determined that China's Ministry of State Security exploited vulnerabilities in the Microsoft Exchange software to affect thousands of computers and networks worldwide, including in Australia. These actions have undermined international stability and security by opening the door to a range of other actors, including cyber criminals who continue to exploit this vulnerability for illicit gain. The Australian government is also seriously concerned about reports from our international partners that China's MSS is engaging contract hackers who have carried out cyber-enabled intellectual property theft for personal gain and to provide commercial advantage to the Chinese government, end quote. A New York Times piece that I read said that American officials have described their goal as to get China and Russia and other players to agree on a set of guardrails for behavior in the cyberspace domain. I suppose it would be impossible to achieve any kind of arms control. I mean, this isn't like limiting the number of warheads and allowing weapons inspectors. Like cyber capabilities are always going to remain secret, I guess, until they're actually used. So... The goal here is really to develop targets and standards for what is prohibited behavior and what is acceptable. Unsurprisingly, Beijing has vehemently denied the accusations, calling them a smear and suppression out of political motives. A foreign ministry spokesperson added that, of course, the US is the largest source of cyber attacks in the world. And of course, we know from the Snowden revelations that the US government has itself hacked into private companies before, including China's Huawei. In this vein, the Chinese embassy in Australia criticised Canberra and highlighted what it saw as hypocrisy, noting or observing that Australia had bugged the phone of Indonesia's president back in 2009. So, Alan, let's, let's take a step back. Of course, every country that can spy does spy, and we know from the Snowden revelations that the US has done a lot of spying. Is it possible to draw distinctions between legitimate and illegitimate espionage? We probably need an ethicist for this one, Darren. All espionage is interference in the internal affairs of another country, and it almost always involves knowingly breaking or encouraging the breaking of the laws of another state. But we draw, I think, a de facto distinction between inverted commas good espionage which is the silent extraction from an adversary of information useful for government policy and bad espionage, which is sloppy and leaves messes behind it. And above all, if it's undertaken for purposes other than those of national security. So we say that stealing for commercial purposes is wrong, as opposed to stealing commercial secrets, e.g. military plans, for national security reasons, I guess. And, you know, there's there's plenty of international law and agreement behind us in that with all the rules regarding the protection of intellectual property. And as you say, it's widely done. I mean, uh, the Australian Signals Directorate proclaims that in its public motto, reveal their secrets, protect our own. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you just, you just have to look at the statement, the extract that I read out to know that one of the main features of, of this exchange hack that's been focused upon by, by the West was its indiscriminate nature. You know, it, it affected tens or even hundreds of thousands of organizations. And it's interesting, at the time, despite leaks from the government, if I recall correctly, that it was the Chinese, experts were saying that the reckless nature of the hack was actually out of character for Chinese methods, which are normally very precise and targeted. Whereas here, this hack, you know, in the way it was done, its indiscriminate nature actually opened the door for other hackers to come in and do their own thing afterward, as was said in the statement. Another interesting feature here is the dimension of the government or a government collaborating with or perhaps outsourcing to or even just tolerating the activities of criminals and and, and contractors. I mean, as you say, Alan, state-sponsored hacking is tolerated and expected on some level, but there are norms there are norms which I think to some extent do govern how government actors will behave. But if the work is done by criminals or, or even contractors, there's much less chance they're going to observe those norms. And so, you know, maybe that's the reason why rather than a small number of organisations being hacked here, you have tens of thousands. The Council of Foreign Relations, Adam Siegel, called this, quote, greater tolerance for irresponsibility, end quote. I also saw it pointed out that the outsourcing of hacking in particular has long been a a modus operandi and a preference of China's MSFs. Yes, it gives the government plausible deniability, but the consequence of that is it also might reduce their control of operations, which means that these actors can engage in their own profit motives on the side. So my takeaway is, you know, just like the laws of war, there are more and less legitimate ways of doing these activities. And thus, it's really important that we attempt to create rules for this space and push back against the relentless whataboutism and moral equivalences that will be used in response. Lastly, even though there has been criticism for the lack of sanctions, we should not overlook these indictments, which demonstrate a very impressive attribution capability to pinpoint precise individuals that are likely never going to be arrested. Because this does curtail those individuals' freedom of movement if they can't go to a country that has an extradition treaty with the US. And it's not going to deter everyone, but I think its impact is is, is not negligible. So, Alan, my second question, what did you make of this effort to broaden the coalition, the US going beyond its usual Five Eyes partners here and getting the EU and NATO on board? I, I saw that NATO had never made a cyber attribution before. This is the first time. Yes, there there may have been inconsistencies and there were no sanctions, but did you think this was a reasonable effort? I'm not sure that the statements were inconsistent, Darren. They were different, but I assume that the Five Eyes partners went further than the others in the attribution to the Chinese MSS because they had information available to them that the others didn't have access to and, and that they weren't prepared to take it on trust. But I thought the general US approach was sensible and consistent with the Biden administration's overall focus on coalition building. The objective seemed to be, as you were saying, by drawing clear attention to China's actions to begin pressuring Beijing to agree to some basic norms governing state behaviour in this area. And you'd have to say that This would be particularly and probably most achievably around attacks on critical infrastructure, you know, which affect everyone equally. 
There's been a lot of focus on China's cyber capabilities, but in late June, the International Institute of Strategic Studies, the IISS, released a useful net assessment on cyber capabilities and national power. I don't know if you saw it, Darren, but no. it's, a, it's a terrific example of the sort of contribution that think tanks can make. And it concluded that only the US was a first tier cyber power in the world and that it had an advantage of at least 10 years over China. But then interestingly, along with China, Russia, the UK, France, Israel, and Canada, the report rated Australia in the second tier of cyber capabilities, mm. despite our modest defence and intelligence budgets. And of course, we're there largely because of the long-standing Five Eyes relationship. But the report does conclude that if Australia is to become a more effective cyber power, it will need to make dramatically greater investments in cyber-related tertiary education and carve out a more viable sovereign cyber capability. And I think that's on the mind of a lot of people who are following that subject in Australia too. Why no sanctions? I've got no idea. I mean, maybe it was because they couldn't identify actions they could take which would be both proportionate and effective and to which China would not respond with counter sanctions. Maybe they were more interested in clearing the ground for discussions, as you were saying. Maybe something is going on unheralded and unannounced behind the scenes that we'll never know about. Yes, you have to start somewhere. I mean, I, I really try and draw a distinction between long and short term here. You, building a rules-based international order in cyber is going to take a very long time both because of how complex the domain is and how contested it is and, of course, the power dynamics at play. You're not going to get a treaty straight off, you know, unlike the UN treaty or the Bretton Woods treaties, which had the benefit of, of being you know, written and enacted pretty much with a blank slate in the aftermath of, of World War II. So this means if you can't write a treaty from scratch that's just going to govern everybody, you've got to build norms of behavior. And you do this slowly over time by defining them first, by criticizing their violation, and by trying to get as many governments to agree with you as possible. And only then do you start thinking about writing it all down and trying to get some larger international agreement where you use the gravitational force of your coalition to pull others into your tent. So I think I see this as inching forward, but in the right direction on a very long road. And my guess on sanctions is that some of the other states just weren't on board. I, I get the criticism and you know, I, I can see why some are frustrated that, that more wasn't done in terms of the short-term strategic interests of the US and its partners. But if, if you zoom out and take that long-term perspective, right now the most important thing is developing that consensus on what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And I think this was a, you know, a very positive move on that front. Before we move on, Alan, there's a second cyber story from just this past week worth mentioning. The Israeli company NSO Group was revealed by a group of news outlets and think tanks, themselves using very highly technical and labor-intensive work to, to work this out, I might add, to have provided spying software called Pegasus, which appears to have swept up the data from the phones of thousands of people, notably heads of state like French President Macron, opposition leaders, business leaders, journalists, and human rights activists. 
people's iPhones could be hacked remotely without the user doing anything. NSO Group has pushed back quite angrily, and there is some dispute over how the individuals were identified and whether the names on the lists actually matched up. And now they've just said they're not going to say anything more because they're so unhappy. But look, what's interesting about this story is that you have got this private company which has developed and is definitely selling its intelligence capabilities. And these are often going to foreign governments, I assume, who don't have this capability themselves. Now, I've even heard speculation, unverified, that the Israeli government may have been using these capabilities or the fact that the firm was selling these capabilities as part of building its own relationships with foreign governments. And the example used was Saudi Arabia. And I guess if that's true, I suppose it reflects the judgment that the security benefits to, to Israel of improving relations outweigh the costs to liberal values of allowing a government like Saudi Arabia to have these capabilities. Yeah, bear in mind, of course, that even if Israel knew about this and was, was supporting it, they're not going to be the first. They aren't the first. You know, there's reporting from a few years ago that the US government helped the United Arab Emirates for example, and build out its own intelligence capabilities. So it's a bit of a mess, Alan, but with all that said, what did you find interesting about this story? Well, a couple of things. This is a reminder of the challenges that face democratic governments. Is it more important for people to have secure communications that are not open to intrusion by criminals or other powers, or for backdoors to be preserved so intelligence and security agencies can access the communications of people who might do harm. We've we've had a lot of that debate here in Australia over our IT and communications security legislation. In this case, former Israeli security personnel, as you say, were able to provide foreign governments with technology that they ostensibly sold them for the purpose of dealing with terrorists and criminals, but seem to have been used with the knowledge of the vendors to spy on political opponents and troublesome journalists. And the researchers analysing the information found evidence of connections with Saudi Arabia's attack on Jamal Khashoggi, Viktor Orban's crackdown on media opponents in Hungary, Narendra Modi going after his opponents in India. Including inside his own government, it seems. <laughs> Good. Well, well, that's that's where your opponents are often most <laughs> intense in politics. <laughs> uh, so you shouldn't laugh. I, I read, and this sounds plausible, that the Israeli government had to approve the export of this technology. I'm sure they would, you know, that would be absolutely necessary. Should we hold Israel to the standard we ask China to follow on issues like the export of facial recognition software. Anyway, it's a reminder of people lining up to help the techno-authoritarians of the world and the need for us to be conscious of that. That's interesting, Alan. I related to this story first and foremost on a personal level. I mean, the scale of the attack was surprising and really highlighted to me the ever-present vulnerability of being digitally connected, you know, especially as someone who uses an Apple iPhone. And one of the reasons is because of the incredible amount of of resources that Apple has invested in trying to make it the most secure device ever. And it still got compromised. You know, it really got me thinking. And we don't know the scale of how many people or how many devices have been compromised. I mean, I think you use an iPhone too, Alan. Both of our devices could be compromised and we'd have no idea. And 
part of the reason for that is to do with the way that the iPhone is designed in making it very difficult to hack. They've also made it very difficult to do forensics. And part of the discussion I've been following has been the proposal that Apple needs to do much more to allow security software and, and so forth to be able to look at a phone and work out whether or not it has been compromised. On the bigger questions, it is fascinating to me to think of NSO as an instrument of Israeli statecraft. On Twitter, people have been lining up dates. They've been saying, here is the date that this country's government started using the software, at least according to the evidence. And here is the date that Netanyahu was meeting with this world leader. And they, the Modi's the great example. They're, the two of them are frolicking in, I guess, must be the Dead Sea or the Mediterranean, getting their feet wet. And then you know, around that time was the same time that this cropped up in India. So there is a lot of smoke here, whether or not there's fire. But if it is true, you know, this would be the latest manifestation of this fusion of state and market, you know, part of what my ANU colleague, Anthony Roberts, terms the geoeconomic world order, where governments are going to leverage their private sector capabilities as instruments of power and influence whenever they can. It's not just the Chinese, not just the Americans, it's, it's going to be anyone. Yeah. But anyway, let's move on to our third item, APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. We had an informal leaders retreat on the 16th of July that was held virtually. Many world leaders attended, Biden, Putin, Suga, Widodo, Trudeau, Morrison, amongst others, joining the host uh, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Xi Jinping ended up delivering pre-recorded remarks but didn't join the meeting live. Now, this was a first for the organisation, with this extraordinary meeting happening ahead of the planned formal meeting in November. Now, the organisation has had a few rough years. If I remember correctly, in 2018, the meeting in PNG failed to come up with the communication. I think we actually discussed this on a very early episode of the yeah. podcast with Xi Jinping and Mike Pence going at it, sparring. In 2019, the meeting was cancelled due to protests in Chile and not much happened last year with the pandemic. So, Alan, it seems like the Kiwis are trying to inject some energy into the organisation. Can they succeed? You know, what did you make of these proceedings? Like much of the rest of the multilateral system, Apex in some trouble. Australia was intimately engaged in its formation at a time when a principal objective of Australian statecraft was to stop a split emerging down the middle of the Pacific Ocean between the economies of the United States on the one side and first Japan and then China on the, the other, all those sort of concerns which seem so naive now about a yen block growing in the, in the world. <laughs> now, one way of doing this, we thought, was to bind them in the same trade and economic institutions. And so APEC had both an economic rationale and a geopolitical purpose for us. Australian policy and objectives have now shifted. We use the framing device of the Indo-Pacific rather than the Asia-Pacific. And we seem to, mm, I don't know, expect, if not encourage, decoupling in a number of areas of technology and supply chains between China and the United States. So, you know, APEC, like so many institutions, created in a different time is having to reconceive itself. Because it was formed as a grouping of economies rather than states, this to enable 
uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan to participate. New Zealand has been keeping the focus for 2021 very much on economic objectives concerned with economic recovery. So this meeting was entirely focused on COVID-19. It was the first time a special retreat had been held like this, as you as you were saying, outside the main leaders gathering. So that, you know, just getting the, the people in the virtual room together was important and well done to New Zealand for bringing it off. Xi Jinping, as you said, recorded his message, but Joe Biden was virtually present. And that contrasts with Donald Trump, who missed, I think, the last two yeah. APEC meetings. What did that up to? Well, I, you know, you'd have to say if you read the statement at the end of the meeting that it was of more symbolic than practical interest, no surprises or initiatives, but it did happen. And what about Australia? Prime Minister Morrison delivered some brief remarks and we'll link to those. I read, you know, with a COVID-19 focus and a tricky political situation here in Australia, given our low vaccination rates. One of the focuses of his speech was in working on scaling up the mRNA vaccine production. What were your takeaways? I think, well, listeners can read it from themselves, but I, I think the PM's intervention sounded as though he had pretty low expectations for the meeting. It was basically a, a repetition of things Australia was doing for itself and for other partners on the COVID front, together with some, you know, call outs to his mates and a final paragraph that really rehearsed our concerns about China, although it didn't name China by going through the concerns about law of the sea, human rights, economic coercion and so on. And like President Biden, the PM framed this around a call for a free and open Indo-Pacific you know, the main leaders meeting is still to be held in November. And I guess we just have to wait and see what state the world is in by then. But, you know, I reckon it's a good thing that APEC is in safe Kiwi hands for, for the time being anyway. I'm not sure who who has it next. I should have checked on that. Okay, well, let's finish with a very interesting scoop from the ABC's Andrew Proben, published on Wednesday, the 20th of July. That Less than a month after abandoning its Kabul embassy, the Australian government is already considering re-establishing a presence in Afghanistan to monitor the Taliban's resurgence amid concerns that a lack of real-time intelligence is hampering our security. The report suggests the first steps would be stationing intelligence officers with their American counterparts. As the report points out, and we all know, the Taliban is making steady gains now controlling, I think, almost half the country's districts. All, of course, while the US troops are withdrawing under orders from President Biden, who has been pretty explicit in stating that Afghanistan really isn't his problem to solve. Alan, your reaction? We talked about this only recently and, and made the point that the Australian pullout seemed precipitous. I can't remember seeing discussion of a reversal on an international decision come quite as quickly as this before. Now, we should acknowledge that the Minister expressed from the beginning Australia's expectation, I think she said this measure would be temporary and we'd resume a permanent presence in Kabul once circumstances permit. But so fast, it's not as though we didn't have a pretty good idea when the announcement was made I think in late May rather than a month ago, Darren, that of the likely trend in Taliban activity. I thought the, the form of the leaking was peculiar 
to the sort of nonchalant references to stationing Australian intelligence officers with the CIA in Kabul was pretty bizarre. I mean, if you're going to do that, I don't think a chatty conversation with a journalist is the best way of announcing it to the world. We've still got an accredited ambassador to Afghanistan and some staff working on it, but they're operating, according to the DFAT website, from a number of different locations which are not being disclosed for security reasons. Why has the reversal happened? A number of things have probably developed in ways the government didn't quite expect. For example, the strength of public concern, particularly from military veterans, about the fate of Afghans who'd worked for Australian forces does seem to have caught the government a bit by surprise. And the domestic and international criticisms of the US pullout have also come from across the spectrum. I saw the Economist magazine are usually sober in its judgments, concluding that although America was never going to solve all Afghanistan's problems, to leave the country back at square one is a sobering failure, they said. So perhaps the government or parts of it wanted to get Australians back in country sooner. As I said at the time, I thought we were leaving at precisely the point that having an Australian flag still flying in Kabul, even in restricted circumstances, would send an important message to the Afghan government and to the world of continuing international support as the pressures grew. And we said this at the time as well, none of this was going to be easy and it's sort of silly to pretend that it was. The cost of maintaining a mission and protecting staff in Kabul is higher, I think, than anywhere else in the world. DFAT has limited resources. How does it use those resources in the most efficient way possible? If we're going to be in Kabul, we have to have clear and purposeful reasons for putting staff in there. And we noted earlier um, when we were talking about Catherine Campbell's job that duty of care legislation comes into it too. So, look, we're just going to have to see what happens, but it seems hard to believe whatever happens that Australian policy was following the best processes when the original decision was made. I admit that almost as soon as we recorded our podcast on this last time, Alan, I started having second thoughts. I think I'd been too easily persuaded by that $2 trillion figure bandied around as the cost of the war, when in fact the relatively small presence in recent years of keeping maybe five, ten, I think it was 10, 15,000 troops there, US troops there, the cost of that was actually pretty modest, but had major or at least really meaningful strategic, not to mention moral benefits. Of course, there was the issue of honouring the agreement that Donald Trump had made to withdraw, which gave Biden the cover to do what he clearly wanted to do anyway. But there's also an argument that the Taliban have not been keeping their side of the bargain either. So, look, as Probin says in, in his piece, if Kabul falls, are we going to recognise the Taliban as the legitimate government and establish diplomatic relations with them? I just hope this scenario has been has been thought through. And that gets back to the interesting discussion we had about Myanmar back in episode 71, Darren, and whether Australian policy dating back to the late 1980s of recognising states 
not governments, really did change when we recognised Juan Guaido as president of Venezuela in 2019 at the behest of the Trump administration. All right, Alan, well, let's, let's wrap up with our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? Well, mainly because we we are underdone, I think, in talking about Russia on this podcast, I thought I would recommend an interview with one of the tiny handful of people who came out of the Trump administration with their reputation enhanced, and that's Fiona Hill, the British-born specialist, anyone who heard her strong Northern English accent on news reports at the time will will remember her. She was the Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the NSC, and she's now at Brookings. Anyway, in an excellent podcast hosted by Gideon Ruckman, the Chief Foreign Correspondent of the Financial Times, she offers really sound advice on how to deal with Putin and why you shouldn't do it like Trump. Thanks, Alan. I've got two recommendations. The first is a podcast episode where Australian MP Tim Watts is interviewed on the ANU's National Security Podcast by my ANU colleague Rory Medcalf. Tim describes himself as a, a bit of a nerd, which makes it for a very intellectual discussion, but he's also very much an institutionalist and he's interested in how the health of our political and civic institutions is affected by technology and connectivity and what we can do about it. So I found every minute of the discussion interesting and valuable. Second, I think some listeners will roll their eyes, but I have yet another Disney Plus TV show to recommend, which is the recent six-episode series called Loki. Look, I've watched pretty much all of the Marvel content, all the movies and so forth over the past 15 or so years and, and enjoyed them all. Yeah, they're all sort of seven out of ten-ish, you know, plus or minus a few points. This was so good. I mean, episode four was up there with the very best episodes of Game of Thrones. But it raises an interesting question of how much you need to know about all the other characters in the history to be able to appreciate it. But I will say that if you are familiar with the universe, this is one of those examples where taking that vast universe of content but actually building upon it to make a meaningful and interesting and poignant character study pays off in spades. People sort of complain that Marvel is always about pushing the story forward and and even more complex plot. But here they've created something that they've taken a character who's very well loved, an anti-hero, a villain, and really dug into his psychology. And you've built upon what's come before, but made something really terrific out of it. Passionately said. (laughs) Passionately said. I was really surprised. I've heard the Tim Watts podcast and agree with you. It's really terrific. I am a total stranger to the Marvel Universe, however, but you did persuade me on The Mandalorian in an earlier episode. So perhaps I'll take a look. It, it's a high-end Doctor Who. I mean, it's, it basically has the feel of Doctor Who. And the question is, I, actually, it would be a fascinating experiment. As someone who has no knowledge of the backstory, can you enjoy it? nearly as much, if not as much, as I did. Anyway, six episodes, Disney Plus, possibly worth your time. Anyway, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Mitchell McIntosh for audio editing today and thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon.